Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with only 10 days left in the federal election, did last night's sole English debate change anybody's votes? Tomorrow marks two decades since the horrific 9-11 attack that shook the world. How are we marking that anniversary? And we discuss misinformation from, well, places like Rebel News and celebrities. Jeffrey Dvorkin will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The English language debate held last night uh, in Gatineau, just across the river from Ottawa, and uh, no knockout punches, but we don't usually expect those sorts of things, and, and not a whole lot in the way of surprises, but there were some uh, rather animated and testy uh, exchanges between some of the leaders. Uh, Green leader Anna May Paul actually told the English language leaders debate that she thinks a consensus is actually forming among the federal parties about providing Canadians with a basic income. That was an interesting twist. But it was pretty clear in, in one particular segment, I guess there were actually numerous segments, uh, that Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole were not in agreement about how to make housing more affordable. The housing Mr. O'Toole's plan on housing gives half a billion dollars on breaks to the wealthiest it's, it's landlords and Mr. for building new The houses. housing crisis has gotten worse under Mr. Trudeau, and months ago he fought against us trying to take foreign non-resident money out of our housing market. Uh, just don't you just love it when they're talking over each other? It's a great way to, to really get an idea as to what's going on. So, uh, what kind of an impact did it have on you and me as voters as, as we head to the polls on the 20th of September? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Wayne Petrosi. Uh, Wayne is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. What was your uh, impression last night? Well, I think this was, uh, I think, one of the most clear cases of where the format actually determined both the content and the temperament of the entire debate. I, I've heard nothing but criticism about the format. What was your, I, And I got the sense that because of the timing and because of the way the moderator kept, obviously, a stopwatch on things, I, I noticed all of them at one time or another rushing their words to say, i got to get this out, i got to get this out, i got 30 seconds. No, it, 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 yeah, I think that was the case. I, I think part of the uh, distemper on the stage last night was uh, towards the end a byproduct of the format itself that uh, each of the leaders felt that you know it's as if someone took audio clips of all the comments threw them on the floor and then reassembled them randomly <laughs> you couldn't follow a conversation because well the, the moderator wouldn't let you uh, temp, uh, you know so you have Trudeau speaking uh, to uh, uh, O'Toole and O'Toole responding, and then the moderator stopping both of them and letting uh, Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie Paul say something, and the, and the block leader say something, and then going back to Trudeau and it it, it was it wasn't good. It it actually made it one of the things we dislike most now about modern politics is the extent to which. 10-second sound bites supposedly are a substitute for a policy analysis or a policy announcement. And you saw that last night by all the leaders. I mean, we could go down each of them if you like. And we will in just a couple of seconds, because I, I, I share your frustration as I was watching that last night. Uh, and, and I know the old you know, style would be an opening statement, in which case you kind of set the tone, of, okay, this is what I want to do in this debate. And you get, usually get a closing statement, too. That, none of that. It was all, as you say, these 30-second uh, skirmishes, I guess, between leaders. And I, I guess as a result, what happened and what we saw happening an awful lot of the time is they obviously have talking points that they wanted to get in and things that they wanted to make sure that were put on the record there. But they put them in the most uh, incongruous way. In other words, they'd be talking about housing, and then he gets something else that he wants to talk about about assault because he didn't get a chance to say it before, but he wants to get it in there, and it just didn't make any sense. It was very disjointed, I thought. Oh, it was was remarkably disjointed. And, you know, as I said, it became clear, I think, among those on the stage that it wasn't just them. The actual format was not allowing them to put something together that was coherent. So, as voters, as watchers, as viewers, as listeners to this whole thing, uh, was there any positive, anything we could take away from that? I, I would I would seriously advise uh, voters not to take much away from this at all. Uh, the the assertions made by, by various leaders at different points uh, really won't stand the test of, 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 of a day, never mind of time more generally. 
I, I thought one of the takeaways as I was finishing off last night, I thought, you know, those who us, uh, had decided to go watch Maya Fernandez in the U.S. Open probably made a better choice. At least they had to, they took something away from their evening's television viewing as, as opposed to what was going on. Uh, and, and there was a message there anyway. They didn't seem to be on here. And, and that's what I wanted to hear. I mean, you know, I admitted, you know, I'm a, a political junkie. That's what I've been doing for years and years and years. And I like to watch this as you are and analyze and find out. You know, I was looking for things like body language and, and temperament and things of this nature. I didn't, they weren't on camera long enough to make those determinations. It, it was back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, the, the director of the thing, I think he probably just, you know, probably had a, a, a fit at the end of the thing. I mean, because you're trying to keep up with the way things were going. No, absolutely. It, it you know it it was very choppy, even visually. Uh, never mind uh, 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 orally. What do you think? Is, uh, I want to get into this a little bit more uh, about the techniques that were used here. The idea of bringing in uh, folks like Evan Solomon and, and Rosie uh, uh, Barton to to actually ask the questions of this, all with their own styles, etc. Uh, was that helpful? Was it effective? They all have their own styles. And by the way, each and every one of them that asked questions interrupted the person they asked the, the question to, and, and before they even got their answer, I found that was a little frustrating too. Well, you know, I, I think the, I mean, in the past, you've had formats where a, a number of journalists have, have been involved, usually representing the networks that are co-sponsoring the event. And, you know, that, that's as it is. And, and we, and I, and that I wasn't surprised by. It was simply the, the, the format within that decision that then just led to not a lot happening uh, that anyone could take away from that conversation and add it to their considerations on how they might vote let's uh, go down the last roster if we could professor and, and 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 score at least the process and at least the uh, the the performance of these we'll, we'll start with block leader uh, Yves francois blachette uh, who i thought underperformed frankly in the second fr french debate and uh, i didn't have very high expectations i didn't see he contributed a whole lot last night well you know that's partly the, the paradox of him being on on the stage yeah. as he he tells you right off the top, listen, I'm not interested in Canada. I'm here to represent the, the interests of, of Quebec. And, okay, uh, then why would you insist on being part of, of the format? It's always puzzled me. Uh, and, and then within that, you know, he was uh, clearly frustrated by the format. In fact, he, I think by halfway in, he was complaining to the moderator that, you know, I'm not getting much chance to speak here. I'm behind five minutes, all the others, all the other leaders. And I, I guess it was true, he was. And, uh, so he was probably bothered right from the top, almost from the start, by the format. But as I said, his, the more general question that he never seemed willing to, uh, no one's ever asked him, I guess. So why do you want to be here if you insist you're not interested in the larger Canadian project? And that was a question, I guess, a couple of them asked uh, Mr. Blanchet through the course of the evening. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to Green Leader Anime Paul, uh, who was at the debate last night. Uh, it may well have been the first time she's ventured outside of Toronto Centre, the riding that she's trying to win in Toronto. She spent most of the election in downtown Toronto. Uh, but this was the first time a national audience really got to see her. Uh, how would you rate her performance last night? Well, you know, I, I, I think this was her opportunity to lay out the Green platform. Uh, again, the format really didn't give her much chance to do that and as for her 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 comments back and forth you know she ultimately also jumped into the pool in terms of uh bringing a rather a surly attitude towards towards the proceedings and her exchanges with the block leader her exchanges with the prime minister reflected that overall though i think you know given that there's nothing else to, mar ben to benchmark her against in terms of past performances. She did well because it's, you know, the only performance we've seen. Exactly. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, you know, you've seen the recent polling, Professor, that say he's probably the most likable of all the candidates in, in some of the polling that's been done. I don't know if it necessarily translates into votes, but uh, as we've talked about in the past, the NDP have tried to make some gains, uh, not just across the country, but especially in Quebec, uh, win back some of those seats that, uh, that they held in a couple of previous elections. Uh, how did Singh do yesterday? Well, you know, I, I, you know, historically, the the party and its leaders have been known for the kind of detailed nature of their policies and their platforms. And last night we saw, you know, the opposite of that in terms of, you know, as as he was needled by the prime minister that 
you know, your party doesn't even cost your platform. He was needled by the prime minister on on the question of of their climate program, and so why is it uh, that your climate program, you know, receives an an F grade from an independent panel of climate experts? Uh, And he tended to go back time and again to the difference between Mr. Trudeau's words and Mr. Trudeau's actions, which I think they were wise to do and that they believe has some traction with voters. Uh, I, I think, though, that, you know, he had his moments where that I, I'm sure he wishes uh, everyone would forget. The, the question that he was uh, confronted uh, or thrown at, thrown to him about China, it, 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 was, uh, it was as if he all of a sudden was walking in a desert. It, 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 there was, he attempted to not answer the question and switch topics. The moderator tried to tell him, no, 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 the question's about China. He still wanted to talk about something else. And I, I don't know whether it was just a moment where he forgot his briefing notes or what or, or what it was but um, so he had a, a mixed evening I think and I and I suspect uh, the this morning they're reviewing things they're wishing they had done some things differently they like some other things he did do though uh, Aaron O'Toole the conservative leader who uh, I, I don't want pundit classified him as the front runner. I, I don't necessarily. I, I, we're talking about percentage points here with some of the overnight tracking that's gone on here. It's, it's effectively a dead heat. But let's face it. I think uh, I don't know a lot of people, Professor, that anticipated that uh, you know a party that was probably behind by eight or nine points when the, the writ was dropped uh, would be in a dead heat, if not a slight lead at this stage. How did O'Toole perform last night? Well, again, here you saw the format that really enabled uh, in his him to make claims that really. Are, don't, are, are really quite meaningless. Uh, for example, uh, he promised that we're going to create a million jobs in a year. Say, wow, that's fantastic. Except if you looked at this morning's jobs numbers, the, the Canada created 90,000 jobs last month without him as prime minister, which would mm-hmm. work out to over a million a year without him as prime minister. Uh, a similar claim about we're going to build uh, a million houses in three years. Well, the construction rate right now is 300,000 a year. So, you know, these claims and are just, you can throw them out there. The format doesn't give anybody a chance to say anything about them. The format doesn't even, gives you the excuse to not in any way explain in detail what it is and how you're going to do that. And it turns out these are claims that if he stayed in bed for the next six weeks would probably come true in any event. Uh, and, and again, we, I, we keep harping back to the format, but you're right. It seemed to be the dominant part of the evening. Uh, I anticipated that not just uh, Mr. Trudeau, but others were going to go after O'Toole about his flip-flopping about gun control and things like that. I don't think it even came up. If it did, it was a, a passive way because there was no time to talk about something like that. Uh, right. let's, let's let's go to Mr. Trudeau then. Uh, as we've talked about in past debates, I mean, who, whoever the prime minister is, uh, is always going to be the, the focus of the attack. Stephen Harper got that. I mean, everybody who's there, it's, it's gang up on, on the guy who's in office right now, and they, we certainly saw that last night. But how would you rate the, the, the Prime Minister's performance? Well, again, you know, you're right. Any Prime Minister will be the focus of attention on, uh, on a debate stage. And in, in Mr. Trudeau's case, again, he was clearly frustrated by that format. I know I hate to keep repeating myself, but it, it, it got to him uh, on, on several occasions. But I think the overriding hurt that was inflicted on him had to do with even calling the election. Uh, that was pounded at him time and again. And I, I have to think in his, that I never understood the decision myself to, to call the election. There was very little upside to, to his decision. So, I mean, if you look at it, there were three possible outcomes when he called the election. He wins. Majority government. And the truth is, that would be his third term. He was going to resign probably halfway through. He comes back, but with only a minority. Party's going to look at him and say, listen, bud, bad move. Begin to clear the way for someone to replace you. Or he loses, which is a conservative minority. In which case, the party says, bad decision, clear out your desk. It, it, I, I, it was a not a winning call, and I can't for the life of me figure out what made him believe that this was uh, the right decision at the right time. 
I was talking to a, a liberal insider who's worked on a number of campaigns in the past, asked them that very same question. And, and their initial response, and I'm sure you've heard this, Professor, in the past, is they say, look, everybody's always ticked off when you call an election. There's never a good time for an election. But it takes a, you know, three or four days, and then everybody forgets about that. They're not forgetting about that. That's still an issue uh, heading into, in, you know, into the home stretch here. And, and is that surprising to you that people are hanging on to that aspect? No, it isn't, because what's different about this election is I think there is a distemper out in the broader public. There's an irritation. There's a, a sense of frustration. It's, it's related to the pandemic and the, injure, the almost endemic nature of, of, of the COVID disease that people are on, they're kind of out of sympathy. They're out of empathy. They're not happy. And that's a very difficult environment to to run a campaign in, uh, a winning campaign, because you have no idea how people are going to ultimately decide. And I think that's what we're facing this time. Uh, even in a, a, a situation uh, that was, I feel like, uh, much more affirmative in terms of public attitudes uh, about our own sense of well-being, uh, calling the election when you have a minority government is risky. In this environment, it, was, it, was, it is incredibly risky. And, you know, there are many people out there, I think close to one in seven, the polling suggests, that, you know, the slightest thing may decide, may lead them to decide, oh, hell, I'm going to vote this way, or oh, hell, I'm not going to vote at all. And that's, uh, that must drive the people working the ground campaign, uh, must drive them to exhaustion. Exactly, because I've heard that in response with a lot of the folks that have, you know jumped and got in touch with our program here. There are always going to be those you know that are going to say, "Well, I'm going to vote conservative because I always have a liberal or whatever the case might be," and I can't stand this guy and I want to get him out of office. There's that, but I'm hearing an awful lot of people that are saying, "You know what? I'm just do I go with the devil I know or the devil we don't know?" You know, I've got concerns about all of them. Nobody has really jumped out here and, and, and captured anybody's imagination. This is, I, I know it's a cliche to say it's anybody's race, but I think. It's it's anybody's race because we're all frustrated and we're not hearing much of what we want to hear. No, I think that's true, and and, and uh, I, I think the, the, uh, as a result, uh, if you're going to be up late on election night and maybe <laughs> a couple days after, as we wait for mail-in votes, because uh, I, I don't think we have a good feel for what turnout's going to likely be. Will it be up? Will it be down? I suspect down. Uh, we don't have a uh, within the general turnout numbers which group turns out because we know different age groups tend to vote differently. Uh, and then we've got all these, uh, uh, these last-minute deciders and with a, without a clear sense as well of, of how they might break on voting day. Well, and as you've reminded us in the past, I mean, you know, there is the, the vote. We know that. But uh, it's, it's where you win seats. Uh, that determines who's going to win the government. Uh, you know, we, we remember, of course, that Andrew Scheer uh, won the popular vote in the last election, but he didn't win the election. Uh, so that's that's another wild card that we, uh, I guess, are going to have to be watching. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm going to have to have a lot of coffee, I guess, on that night. Uh, Professor, always a, ple a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much for spending some time in your analysis today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. That's a Professor Wayne Petrosi from Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, the 20th anniversary of that uh, horrific day uh, that was felt uh, around the world, not just in New York City. And we've talked about uh, the Canadian impact as well. The Gum From Way, the successful Broadway play, is really based on what happened in Newfoundland when a number of flights, uh, international flights, were diverted to there. Uh, anyway, I want to get some reaction to, to what's going to be happening south of the border. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington correspondent with Global News. Uh, Reggie, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about 9-11, uh, about first of all. And I want to talk about the president's uh, vaccine announcement in a couple of seconds, too. I want to get your read on that. Uh, heading into the 20th anniversary, we, we all remember, I guess, where we were that particular day. And as we saw the, the things unfold, we, uh, the Twin Towers, uh, the Pentagon and the damage that was inflicted on there, too. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not a very cohesive or, 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 or to coming together sort of situation or mindset in Washington these days uh, with some of the politics that's going on vis-a-vis vaccinations and Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. Uh, what is, is, is going to be happening in Washington is, is, a, is a way to remember and, and to, uh, to recognize the, uh, the sacrifices and the deaths that occurred in 9-11? Yeah, so, I mean, every year uh, uh, there is a memorial that is kind of put in place uh, at the Pentagon at the site of where 
uh, the, the one of the planes had struck. Uh, last night I was actually on my deck and I could, you know, just kind of look to the southwest and you can see a giant pillar of light that beams up from the sky. It is one of a couple of different uh, pillars of light that are used for memorials uh, around the country, the second being uh, at the site in New York City. Uh, the president is going to take part in uh, a memorial uh, at the Pentagon tomorrow, along with a, a good number of members of Congress, uh, people that were impacted, members from the Pentagon, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, it's kind of been a, a usual annual tradition that takes place at the Pentagon, one of several that are going to take place around the country. The president is actually going to go to the Pentagon. He's going to go to New York, and he's going to go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, along with former President Bush. This is going to be a somber moment, especially in the wake of everything that we saw unfold uh, in the final few weeks in Afghanistan not all that long ago. Reggie, can they hit the pause button and, and, and show some sense of unity here? I mean, it's been pretty fractious in Washington lately. Yeah, I mean, it has been fractious, uh, and, and it's been a, a difficult several months uh, on a number of different fronts, whether you're talking about counterterrorism, whether you're talking about the war, whether you're talking about COVID-19, uh, or whether you're talking about the simple kind of division in politics that's existed now for the last several years. Uh, there is an opportunity here for uh, the country to come together. This is not something, 9-11 was not something that impacted a, a Democrat or a Republican. This is one of those rare opportunities uh, not just around the country, but specifically here in Washington, where you are going to have leaders standing side by side. You will have members of Congress standing side by side, no matter what their political stripe is, understanding uh, the gravity of the situation, understanding the solemnity of this situation, uh, and understanding that this ultimately was something that broke a country that has been slowly for 20 years trying to put the pieces back together. Yeah, it's it's amazing how we've come full circle here. As you mentioned, uh, the 20th anniversary tomorrow, and and the, uh, the of course the uh, ending of the uh, the military involvement uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, less than a week ago, I guess now, uh, into Afghanistan. Uh, but there's also, as as you've been reporting le lately, Reggie, uh, the threat of domestic terrorism, and we saw what happened on January 6th uh, at the Capitol, of course, and uh, and th that those wounds have nowhere near healed now. Now we're told that there's going to be another quote unquote rally that's going to be happening there. Uh, I guess asking for freedom for the people that have been arrested as a result of that rally, uh, and and there's talk about putting the fences back up around there. This is this is a pretty troublesome time in the capital, isn't it? This is a troubling time, uh, and and just to kind of step back a, a little bit to go back 20 years, uh, you know, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, when when everything was kind of in its infancy right after that attack, the real focus had always been on. Uh, on uh, the threat of terrorism from the external side of the U.S. border. And in the last 20 years, that attack has really kind of given uh, uh, an opportunity for people to carry out attacks within the borders of the United States. And we've only seen that progress over the last 20 years, ultimately culminating in uh, one of the worst attacks on January 6th. And you're right, another call for another potential you know, quote unquote, whether it's an insurrection or a gathering, we don't know what it's going to be uh, within just a matter of days with that fencing request to go back up around the Capitol. Again, further highlighting the political divide that exists in this country. And even as people try to rally around the events that happened 20 years ago to try and move this country forward, there is still a political force that tries to split and separate it. Uh, and that's going to be something that's, that is going to be as difficult, if not more difficult, to try and overcome, uh, you know, in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. And one of these issues uh, that some of these people are using as a wedge issue here, of course, is, is vaccinations. Uh, you know, this was a great success story, Reggie. I remember you and I talked about this months ago when the, the program started to roll out just after Joe Biden was, was inaugurated. And they were just, you know, patting each other in the back about the great success rate and the number of people that were getting vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's tailed off terribly right now and uh well i guess that the quote that i remember from yesterday is uh the president saying our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us uh th these are tough words from our president they are tough words uh and and i used the words yesterday that we've kind of moved beyond vaccine hesitance in this country and we're now at vaccine obstinate uh and it is creating a hurdle there are 80 million people in this country eligible for a vaccine that simply aren't rolling up a sleeve they're allowing for this kind of fertile breeding ground for the Delta variant and for other variants, including mu, uh, to, to continue to gain and, and retain their dominance, impacting those that are the most vulnerable in this country, which are the kids that can't actually get a vaccine. A quarter million in the last week uh, were diagnosed uh, with COVID. So this is uh, problematic. I think what is, uh, what is kind of more emblematic of the problem here and how politics is playing so heavily into this, when this vaccine was first created, all 
kind of uh, props uh, were given to former President Donald Trump. Uh, he was thrilled at the fact that they were able to get this vaccine out there. And it's now that same party that is actively resistant to and pushing back on this vaccine that their party was responsible uh, for getting into production solely because it doesn't line up with where the party wants to stand. And that is being against the policies of Joe Biden. It's, uh, it's remarkable, actually, as you say, to see the political dynamic that's in place here, people doing it on a boat face, uh, just because it's the other side that's, that seems to be, you know, promoting something like this. Uh, the announcement yesterday from the President, Reggie, uh, as you've been reporting, uh, covers essentially government workers and healthcare workers. It's about 100 million people, though. This is pretty extensive. It, it, it does cover federal workers and it covers, uh, uh, you know, federal contractors and it covers public healthcare workers. But I think what's gaining more uh, spotlight right now is this push for the president to go to the Department of Labor and have them create an emergency rule that essentially tells private companies, if they have 100 or more employees uh, inside, that they are going to have to require a vaccine a- as well, or they're going to have to require weekly testing. This is something that goes against what the president had said uh, uh, not all that many months ago when he said that he wasn't in favor uh, of forcing uh, the public to get in line for uh, for a vaccine. We now have this coming as a work rule. This is very likely going to uh, be put up against some kind of legal challenge uh, towards the Supreme Court. But it goes to show that when the president says that his patience is running thin, uh, that the patience is essentially run out. And, and he's, as you mentioned, he's gone beyond, you know, coaxing at this stage, which was, I guess, the tact, well, they still think doing it here in this country, but uh, south of the border, I think the president was kind of, you know, trying to use the velvet glove to try to coax them. But essentially, uh, the mandate yesterday was uh, you've got, especially with federal workers, I guess in 75 days to either get vaccinated or face termination. I mean, this the, this is pretty severe. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious here that the president means business. But how are the workers and the unions going to respond to this? Well, so look, a lot of the unions have already been pushing back, saying that this should be an individual responsibility. They're not for the government trying to get in the way and telling workers uh, what they need to do. Uh, But ultimately, uh, the president, uh, you know, he he can do what he wants when it comes to the federal level. He can tell people that there are going to be uh, human resources, disciplinary action for those who do not uh, abide by uh, the rules. And they will point to other precedents that say, look, you need to have vaccines to do X, Y and Z in this country. This is going to be uh, no different. Only this uh, vaccine, this pandemic has simply been uh, politicized. We can expand beyond the federal government, though. You can look at something like the Los Angeles Unified School Board uh, that is now going to mandate that all kids over 12 have a vaccine in order to show up to class. And that has to be taken care of by uh, January 10th. So this is, you know, extending far beyond Washington. This is going coast to coast now where you are seeing people step up, looking to the federal government as uh, to act like a role model and essentially say, if these people need to get vaccinated, we need to get vaccinated. It's going to cause a divide. But the president sees that 80 million people still need to be vaccinated and he is doing everything he can, uh, understanding that even if it faces a legal challenge, it is going to be the only way to get this country to move forward and get out of the pandemic. Very contentious, very controversial issues. Uh, and, and, and and this is only one of many, of course, that's happening south of the border. Uh, early next week, of course, uh, California will have a vote as to whether or not they're going to uh, choose to recall their, their governor. And there are serious political implications to that, as you've been reporting, too. So it's, it's a hectic time and a busy time. Uh, we're so glad uh, that you had some time to give us some perspective on this, Reggie. Have a great weekend, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent with Global News uh, down in uh, Washington at, uh, in the Greenbelt. Uh, and the, the, watching some interesting stuff that's happening. And the California story is something else that we want to talk about in just a couple of seconds uh, because there's some very serious uh, implications to that uh, with that power balance that's going on in Congress right now. And uh, we'll follow that story and get you some of the details on that. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program right now Elliot Tepper, who's an Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, uh, specializing in U.S. politics. Elliot, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about Joe Biden, first of all, and then I want to talk about 9-11 and, and 20 years later, the, the reverberations of what's going on. Uh, Biden had an incredibly high approval rating the first couple of months. A lot of that, I think, had to do with the success of the vaccine program. Uh, I know some of his critics are saying it could be his downfall. I don't think it's that drastic yet. Uh, but he's playing hardball now. Yes. It's very interesting to me how he's chosen to frame this. Uh, We've been patients. Our patience is wearing thin. He has not framed this, because we're about to talk about 
uh, and it's a mistake I think he made earlier when he was getting a high marks for his handling of the pandemic, when he came out and said, you know, I need you to get your shot. He should, I think, have been framing this as a patriotic matter, uh, which would appeal to the most resistant <laughs> hardcore, that is the Republicans and Trump people in the south of the U.S. He, I think, possibly could have done better on the framing of this by saying our country has been attacked by a foreigner, a uh, foreign matter, and we need to rally around it. Your country needs you, your family needs you, your community needs you, so step up. But he's not doing that. He's framing it in, well, I, I've done my best, and you guys are being real recalcitrant, and no, we, we've really got to come to grips with this. So perhaps he could be handling the framing of it better, but the obvious message is, oh, wow, how many million are not yet vaccinated, and what's going to happen, and the Delta variant, and now school is starting, and the U.S. is not out of the woods on, on COVID. Uh, that's, among other things, led to a dispute over whether the border should be open or closed between Canada and the U.S. You raise an interesting point, and I don't mean to sound patronizing by any stretch of the imagination, but using that and playing that patriotic card uh, always seems to work in the States, no matter what the issue is. Uh, Americans, I don't necessarily think they'd ever set aside all their differences, uh, but they do rally around the flag and rally around America. And, and uh, I, I see your point here. This would be an ideal time with, as we commemorate uh, what happened 20 years ago uh, with 9-11 uh, for Biden to start talking about patriotism and people doing their patriotic duty and, and what has to be done for their country. And of course, it normally comes so naturally to him. He truly is a patriot. Yeah. Um, he, he carries the names of dead soldiers in his pocket. And he visits cemeteries. He truly is an American patriot in, in the old-fashioned sense of the term. But his framing of the issue on this matter uh, is not drawing on that strain of Americanism, which perhaps could give him extra strength, extra, extra heft in combating uh, this, this crisis facing America. How does a, a, a president like this uh, deal with something like 9-11? This is a very emotional time. Uh, I, I, and as we talked about earlier in the program, I, you know, everybody remembers where they were, what was happening as, as events unfolded. And I, I related the story. I was doing a, a talk show on TV. It was a national talk show at the time. Uh, I thought it was going to be on from 12.30 to 1.30. I think it was on from noon until about 10.30 that night uh, because we just – it was it was almost surreal to watch what was happening and to, and to try to explain it. And what exacerbated the frustrations from a, a journalistic standpoint is essentially all communication was shut down because of the, the power failures and everything else in Manhattan. Uh, you know, one or two people were broadcasting from rooftops of, of news buildings and things like that. But lack of information made made a, a pretty scary situation. Um, do you do you tap into those emotions as as a as a leader now to to try to bring that patriotic uh, fervor back to America and and to try to unify them? There's certainly a risk in trying to play off the emotions of of a 20 year old uh, event. I think you used the key word here in terms of our conversation today about 9/11, and that is we watched. What's going to happen today, tomorrow, the next days, is we're going to see repeatedly on all of our various screens, whatever way you get your, your information, a replay of those days. And I think that's extremely salutary to be reminded, really, how we got into the world we're into now and all of the downstream implications from it. Uh, America was attacked in a, in a coordinated fashion. The American homeland which in a sense is the North American homeland, us too, um, and the West felt this. The homeland was attacked in a very coordinated fashion. We should remind ourselves that it was the Twin Towers, so dramatic that, yes, we all know where we were at the time, but also the Pentagon was struck, and the passengers who took over a plane and downed it in Pennsylvania, that plane was certainly headed either directly to attack the, the dome, of the citadel of American democracy, which... Ironically, Donald Trump <laughs> is now accused of attacking on January 6th. Mm-hmm. But, but um, either that or the White House itself. The political, actual political decapitation of America was on the agenda that day. The, the horrific scenes which we are now going to watch is a salutary reminder of how we've gotten into the current world. 
And, and the timing is, is, as you say, interesting about this, because with the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, just a few days ago now, uh, and the politics of it, which seems to seep into everything these days, of course, you know, the Biden critics are simply saying, well, we probably shouldn't even have been there at all. Uh, this is a stark reminder as to why they were there in the first place. And, and, and it's, it's a, a lesson, I think, that needs to be relearned maybe for some people. Exactly. So that's, that's precisely my, my main point today. Uh, and good, I'm glad we, we're on the same page on it. We need to be reminded of just what happened on that day. And we have to remind ourselves, whatever the politics, and we can talk about that. And we have to remember the tragedy of it. The, I, I've been quite disturbed by some of the commentary that's coming out. Well, you know, there were about 3,000, but we killed that many more in COVID and traffic accidents and, you know, opioid overdoses. This was, this was a brutal attack on, on democracy by terrorism, and it has led to the, um, the, the post-9-11 world with, in which we live. And maybe a lot of things went wrong, and maybe, maybe things could have been handled better. And did you really need to go into Iraq after that? Why didn't you finish the job, uh, Mr. Bush, President Bush? But all of that... Uh, should be set aside uh, on these days to remind ourselves just of the nature of this tragedy. Well, and not just that, but learn from the history. Exactly. I mean, you know, let's, I know we're just about out of time here, but, uh, you know, with the fall of Kabul and, and the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan, and, of course, ISIS-K uh, uh, rejuvenated right now, there's a lot of concern, and I think legitimately so, uh, about not necessarily a repeat attack like this, but about a rise in terrorism once again. And we, we can't look back and say, well, well, that was 20 years ago. Thank God that's behind us. It's not. Precisely. It's still, a, it's, it's a, to use the phrase that, I guess, is used oftentimes in security service. It's a clear and present danger. It is, and our complacency is a, is a threat to us. However badly the post-9-11 politics and actions were, and there were a lot of mistakes, we are much better at dealing with terrorism to the point we're now almost blasé about it and saying, well, you know, China's really won this war, and wasn't really all that bad in the first place, and, you know, brought us Donald Trump because fear... Uh, fear really has driven American politics ever since. All of that may be true, but the complacency of saying, well, we, it's something behind us now. We have to remember the cost to the people involved, the threat, the actual threat to democracies around the world. There is an anniversary right now. There's a trial actually in Paris about the terrorist attack on a nightclub there going on right now. Yes, I, th I think you're absolutely right, Bill. Elliot, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Have a good weekend. And uh, lots more to talk about. As I mentioned, there's a, a recall a vote going on in California next week. So uh, a lot on our plates, and hopefully we'll hook up again in the next couple of days. Always, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about uh, what's been going on with the debates and the impact it's had on, on the election, etc. But uh, misinformation has been a key part, sadly, of, of, of electoral process, not just here in Canada, but in other parts as well. Misinformation, uh, plain wrong information uh, that has uh, permeated social media especially. Uh, and it's happening in this country as well. And uh, there are a couple of outlets that have been singled out, and I think probably justifiably so. Uh, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says that organizations such as Rebel News need to take accountability for some of the polarization in Canada over things like vaccines and the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Trudeau made the comments in response to a question from a Rebel News reporter. And this is regarding a court ruling that ordered the Leaders' Debates Commission that organized, for instance, the debate we watched last night, that they had to allow organizations such as Rebel News to cover those debates. Here's what the, the Prime Minister had to say. Organizations like yours uh, that continue to spread misinformation and disinformation on the science around vaccines, around how we're going to actually get through this pandemic and be there for each other and keep our kids safe is part of why we're seeing such... Um, unfortunate uh, anger and lack of understanding of basic science. Uh, that was his response to uh, to the Rebel News reporter. Uh, we should also mention, by the way, that uh, Jagmeet Singh and uh, uh, Mr. Blanchette uh, from the block uh, refused to answer questions from Rebel News 
uh, in those uh, media scrums over the last uh, 24 hours or so. Interesting reaction to what's going on. Uh, so is there a legitimacy to Rebel News? They've certainly said so, and you follow on social media, and you've probably seen some of the posts that they've had in there. Let's talk about the legitimacy or lack thereof of, of organizations like that and the impact that they're having on this election and this pandemic. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Jeffrey Dvorkin, who is a senior fellow at Massey College. He's also a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of the book Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. All right, let me ask you the uh, the not-so-rhetorical question, then. I'll go right back to the title of your book. Uh, given the impact of places like Rebel News and some of the other uh, outlets right now, how difficult it is uh, for all of us to trust news in a digital age? It's increasingly difficult, Bill, and I think that one of the obligations that media organizations that are considered to be mainstream, like yours, has an obligation to make sure that uh, journalists, make choices all the time. They decide what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. They decide which stories to run and who to interview. And just because someone says they are part of a media organization, I don't think necessarily gives them the authority to be up there on the stage with everyone else. I'm, I'm thinking back to my time as a, as a local reporter in Montreal a thousand years ago, and during a municipal election campaign, you would have a lot of people running for office. What was the obligation of a mainstream news organization? I worked for local CBC television news in those days. And did we have an obligation to interview absolutely everyone who was running for mayor? And our conclusion was no. Maybe we had an obligation to say who is running, but that didn't mean that we had an obligation to put them on the television. And I think that uh, the Prime Minister, well, Mr. Trudeau, he's not Prime Minister at this point, uh, Justin Trudeau was correct in saying to rebel media, we don't think that what you're doing is appropriate. And just as rebel media may have the right to their ideas, uh, politicians and media organizations don't have an obligation to actually give them airtime. They don't need to necessarily be given the oxygen of publicity, which is what they want. And they are probably going to uh, use Trudeau's uh, opposition to the question to use that to, to raise consciousness about rebel media and to raise money. This is often about fundraising. And so we have to be really careful about who is out there doing journalism on behalf of the public good, and who's out there doing so-called journalism on behalf of their own interests? Are you a journalist if you're actually supporting or purporting or, or, or trying to endorse a, a political ideology? Is that journalism or, or is that partisanism? Well, it can be both, and often it is both. Um, I think of people like... Uh, uh, Julian Assange, who calls himself a journalist, and I would say that in his WikiLeaks endeavors, he was more of a source for news rather than a journalist. To me, and what I've told my students is, journalists have an obligation to make choices on behalf of the public. Is Does Rebel Media do that? I, I can't see that particularly. So I think that uh, we all have an obligation to exercise a whole bunch of critical thinking skills that we we should have in order to decide whose information is reliable, whose information is trustworthy, and then for to explain to the public why we have made the choices that we have. We need, I guess, a lot more transparency. When did uh, you just used a phrase a couple of seconds ago, Jeffrey? That I. I, I really having trouble trying to get my head around these days, and that's mainstream media. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even give you a proper definition of it. Does that mean places that are licensed, or is it, as is, is some people seem to, to use as a, in, in that context, it, a mainstream media is any media that doesn't agree with your point of view or your philosophy? Well, I, you make a good point, and, and uh, forgive me if I've used shorthand when I shouldn't have. I think what we're talking about is which media organizations have been working on behalf of the public in order to generate trust in the issues as they are presented. Uh, 
So to me, main, the, the term mainstream media is kind of shorthand for broadcasters and newspapers yeah. and websites uh, that are working in a kind of disinterested way on behalf of the public. Um, you know, you guys, the Toronto Star, the CBC, we can disagree with how the journalism is done, but we, I think we can all agree that it's being done in a spirit of civic-mindedness. And I think that that's the, that may be the element that we need to identify more often. Does, does this mean that we're attacking the right of people like Rebel Media to do what they do? They're an online organization. They can keep doing what they're doing. But I don't think that other media organizations or even politicians have an obligation to acknowledge them just because they say we're journalists. Well, maybe they are sort of journalists and maybe they are sort of advocacy groups. We need to make sure we're, we as uh, teachers and journalists are aware of them and their influence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to legitimate them. Uh, I, I guess where I was going with that is, is the, the term mainstream media is really, in many circles now, taken on a negative connotation. Like, oh, the yeah. mainstream media, as opposed to we, we're the truth tellers, and, you know, because we disagree with everything else. Uh, the counterculture argument, and that's not new, by the way, folks, if you're one of those members. It's been going on since the 1950s, uh, yeah. in various ways and shapes and forms, as you could attest to, Jeffrey. And it's just a matter of who wants to wear that monocle these days. Right. And I think that we need to figure out a better way of helping the public understand the nature of the media landscape out there. It is more complicated than ever that news organizations come and go. Uh, we are seeing what's happening in the states where public opinion can be influenced by various advocacy groups, and yet there still is an overwhelming reliance on forgive me if I use the term again, mainstream media organizations to help the public understand what's going on. When we talk about legitimacy, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, being dismissive of somebody just because they may have a contrary point of view. Uh, and we've seen that, I think, manifest itself. Uh, well, I'll use the U.S. political scene, as, as you've referenced. Uh, Fox News is, is, in many people's minds, considered to be an extreme right-wing uh, news organization. And some of the commentators, uh, I, I think there's an argument to be made, go way over the line when it comes to not necessarily reporting information or news, but simply stating a, a, a point of view. And, and whether it's, you know, true or not, it seems inconsequential. Their, their listeners and their, their viewers seem to gravitate to that. But on the other hand, there's another element to this. I mean, you know, Barack Obama, as candidate Obama, and you know, as president, uh, did interviews with Fox News. Uh, Bill Clinton did. Uh, you know, so Democrats don't fear that necessarily because uh, there is an element to this. But it's the extremism, I think, that goes on there. And I see this, Jeffrey, and I know you do too almost on a daily basis, uh, some of the emails and, and tweets that I see in response to some of the pro segments we do and some of the guests that I have on here, uh, I'm accused of, you know, being, what, well, you use whatever word you want. I've, I've been the focus of some people from Rebel Media in the past, too, uh, because of some of my comments about Kelly Leach and, and some of the things she was trying to do. Uh, and so it's... It seems to fall in line with the idea that if you disagree with somebody, you attack them. You don't respect and say, well, that's a different point of view. I disagree with it. It's, it's, it's black or white these days, and I think that's what polarizes people. That's right, and we have to figure out a way that we can share. I hate to sound too 260-ish, uh, but we need to share a kind of commonality, um, whereas the issues in our society are serious, and they need to be discussed, but they no, don't need to be gunned down, literally and, and figuratively. Um, to see people throwing gravel at Trudeau uh, at that campaign rally in southwestern Ontario was really shocking. Um, and and I'm, I'm shocked to see people demonstrating outside hospitals in Toronto and Vancouver. Um, something is missing, and I wonder what we need to do in order to address that missing element of uh, civility and calm and, and citizenship. 
Well, it's because there's so many options right now, and as I think you've mentioned to us in the past, uh, it's so easy these days to simply uh, gravitate to and embrace, uh, it could be a social media site, it could be a Facebook page, it could be any number of things, that, that simply supports your point of view. It, we, as a society, sadly, I think, have come to the point where we don't want to hear contrary points of view, we just want ours to be validated. Right, and that's what they call bias confirmation. People in this confusing welter of information streams are tending to go towards those areas that they can agree with rather than go to those areas with which they will uh, be angered by. So I think that's going to be a challenge for all of us to try to figure out ways in which we can find some kind of common ground about the information that that is out there and also saying that some information is just wrong and even possibly dangerous and we need to make sure that people are aware of that and why because that's one of the tools that the people that are, are of that ilk tend to do is it not is to demonize their opponents not just disagree with them but demonize them and and, and you know the result of that of well stories we saw you know, hillary clinton was in a child pornography ring and right. selling babies and, and all this sort of thing i mean how ridiculous is that but there are people that read that and they did not like hillary clinton uh, so they believed it automatically because that that validates their point of view right and this is being manipulated by some very curious people uh, whether these are you know teenagers in macedonia blogging uh, about uh, hillary clinton and making money off of that or whether this is truly something that is being manipulated by uh, the russian government or the chinese government or the iranian government all of this is out there now, and that's why we need a kind of deliberate, calmer, more rational approach to what information is being provided out there. Is there going to be a point, though, Jeffrey, where people that are upset about the way things are these days are going to push back? And Because uh, we've seen small examples of it. I, there's a story, I guess it was three or four weeks ago now, of uh, the guy that owned the sporting goods store someplace, I think it was, and, and Tucker Carlson was there buying something. And this guy just lambasted He just went into him. He says, you know what, you are killing people. You're lying to people. And he just went at him, almost the finger in the chest sort of thing. And, of course, the, you know, the people at Fox News were jumping all over me. How could you possibly do that? Uh, but everybody on both sides of that spectrum have a tipping point, don't they? They do, and I, I worry that in Canada we're finding ourselves a little closer to that than we used to be. So we need to be very careful, and we need to be very a lot calmer over the next, uh, well, continuously, um, as we see what kind of government and who's going to be running this government in the next, uh, in the next month or so. It's going to be a, a challenge for Canadians. We're used to a certain level of boredom absolutely and 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 political calm and i think we're moving away from that right now hopefully we'll be able to get back to it yeah i think we've seen we've seen examples of that in this, this election campaign as it's unwound over the last couple of days and uh, and and the response by some of these quote-unquote media sites uh, or people that say you know i've got a, a web page or i have a twitter account so ergo i'm a journalist uh, and we we need to be cautious and maybe that's all on us as, as, as the public. is you know We need to be more diligent in, in what we accept and what we digest, and uh, we have to be, I guess, doing a little more due diligence, uh, diligence rather on the information that comes before us. As they say, from your mouth to God's ear. Absolutely. <laughs> I wish. Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Oh, you're more than welcome. Take care. Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow at Massey College and uh, author of the book Trusting the News in a Digital Age. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.